Hi, listeners. Welcome to the Grief Out Loud podcast produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children. I'm Janet Christofaro and wanted to give you just a little heads up as you listen to this episode, you'll be hearing references to our old name, which was Dear Dougie. So just so you don't get too confused, you're listening to the right podcast, and we look forward to bringing you even more great content under the Grief Out Loud name. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Dear Dougie podcast produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children in Portland, Oregon. I'm Jana DeCristofero. After over 30 years of listening to the stories of grieving children, teens, and adults in our bereavement groups, we wanted to share what we've learned from them with the larger community. This podcast is a way to open up the often avoided conversation about grief. While grief is something we all experience during our lives, when we do have a loss, we often find ourselves confused and unsure about what to do, how to feel, or how to talk about it. So whether you're grieving a loss or wanting to support someone who is, we're here to talk about the questions that are important to you. Today's episode 19, um, I'm here with Tony Grace, our Chief Program Officer at the Dougie Center, and we're going to be talking about ways to support children and their families when someone in their life is dealing with an advanced serious illness. So welcome, Tony. Thank you. So glad to have you here. For those of you who are longtime listeners of our podcast, Tony was here for episode eight. Eight. Yeah, way back in... Way back in the day. (laughs) And in that episode, you talked a little bit about... We did an overview of what families experience when they have a terminal illness or an advanced serious illness, and we kind of talked about the complexities of receiving such an illness and, and the impact that it has on a family. So we briefly went over some helpful tidbits of advice that um, parents and guardians and extended family members could, could do to support kids, but we really didn't have a time to, to go into depth over it. So that's what this is about. Well, thanks for coming back to join us, and I'm really looking forward to you know, just having a conversation about what are some really specific ways that adults, maybe who are parents or caregivers of children, or you know, many times we talk with people who are family friends or other relatives right. who just want to know, how can I help this child or this teen? Right. So let's start with, I'm just curious, what's, what's different? What do you find that is different in supporting kids when a death has occurred versus supporting kids when someone is uh, dealing with an illness? Um, when, a, when a child has experienced a death of a family member, um, there, there's, uh, well, it's a final act. Um, and so the relationship that they have with time is very different. Um, when a child has a, a person who has a, an illness, time looks and feels very differently. And it's kind of like a race against the clock. They're always thinking about the time, the timing of things, how much time that they have left, when is it actually going to happen. So there's, there's a lot of fear and energy that gets put into just thinking about the nature of time. Uh, whether it's a conscious or an unconscious decision, um, it doesn't really matter. There's just this focus of time. Um, so there's also this, this feeling of, um, of rushness. I, I don't know of another term. Um, or just expediency of everything. An urgency around it. Right, an urgency of just life in general versus after a death, that urgency isn't there. Uh, so much as there, there's usually a little bit more time and space in order to understand what you're feeling or how to express yourself. Um, 
it seems like when a death has occurred, there can be some urgency around when am I going to feel better, yes. right? So that can come up for people, and then that's that sort of recognition over time, like, oh, this is a process, and I'm not going to instantly feel better one day. But it sounds like what you're saying is with these kids, it's this urgency of what's going to happen and how much time do I have. Right, right. And, you know, when is it going to, is it going to happen when I'm in school? Is it going to happen when I'm over at a friend's house? Is it going to happen when I'm home? Like, how will I know, and when is it going to happen? And, and in that case, most of us don't know exactly when it's going to happen. Um, so what can that look like? Say, you know, you've got a child who's maybe four, or a child who's 12, or a teenager in high school. Do you have a sense of what that might look like for them and behaviors that the families urgency? might be seeing? Yeah. Sure. Um, it can look several ways. Uh, for, for teens, there's usually two opposite reactions that are both normal. One is like they just want to stay home the entire time. They don't feel um, safe in leaving the house or they don't want to leave the person who's dying. Uh, the other reaction is they don't want to be at home at all. They want to um, just be away at school with friends. With friends, would rather live with somebody else um, entirely and not have to to just be cognizant or present to everything that's going on. Um, with younger children, um, it can look like uh, a myriad of, of things. So one of them could be like, you know, behavioral issues or uh, reverting back to earlier behaviors. Like so, if they're five, you know, they may be wetting the bed or um, or very clingy. Um, it could also look like. Um, just wanting attention um, from the parent or the guardian as well. And I imagine that can look different. That sort of cry for attention might not be, hey, mom, do you have a few moments to sit and read a story with me? It might come out in a more behavioral way. Right. And it, you know, it, it might come out at night you know, around bedtime routines. It might come out in the morning of refusing to get up. It might come out around... Um, bath time or even like when it's time to go and have dinner, uh, refusing what's on the table or, you know, requesting specific food. So it comes out in, in several ways. So it sounds like with those kids, maybe there's a delaying of the actual activity to maybe expend, extend the time that they get to spend with the adult. Right. Which is curious when we talked at the beginning about the urgency of time right. and how that can be um, sort of morphing in different ways for kids. So if the, if the primary caregiver um, for the person who is ill is also the primary caregiver for the child, there is this um, kind of uh, tug of war between where am I going to invest my energy and my time. And, um, and for that caregiver, it, it really is a, a decision of what role are they going to fulfill? Are they going to be the caregiver for the person who's ill, or are they going to be the caregiver for... Uh, the children and the teens who are present in the family. And, um, Have you seen some or heard about some strategies from families from, from that primary caregiver of how they've managed that or decisions that they've made? Ooh, that's a really good question. I, it, it's going to be different for each family. Uh, one of the things that uh, has helped is being in a support group with other caregivers who are, who are dealing with that same struggle. Um, some of it some of them have decided, like, okay, I'm going to give a set time uh, for my children so that, you know, each day as part of our routine, they have an individual time with me. Um, an individual, like, separate time. It sounds like if there's multiple kids having that unique time set out right. for 
Johnny and for Caitlin and for Jonah. Right, and then finding someone else who can provide care for the person who is, who is ill. Um, some of it is like just giving themselves permission to like, you know what, I can't, I can't fulfill both roles at the same time and our kids need us, you know, like need me more than I can be with you. Mm -hmm. and, and asking for forgiveness um, from, the, from the person yeah, who's ill. Who's ill. And even if they can't provide it, being able to provide forgiveness for themselves because they can't be everything. And I, I wonder, too, about just acknowledging that. And I wonder if sometimes for some caregivers, they're just tapped out for their energy. But really having someone say, wow, you're having to decide every day where to allocate your resources. Every yes, day. Yes, yes. And sometimes multiple times a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what are some other just the like the basic needs that if you're a caregiver or you're a family friend, like what are some of the things you want to be thinking about when a child has someone in their life that, with an advanced serious illness? I'm thinking even just talking to them about it. What are some tips or ideas for that? Um, well, actually, so the first thing that came to my mind was usually um, friends and family members want to really help the, the family come around the family and like offer to do grocery shopping or mow their grass or you know do some of the little things that they may not be able to get to do. Um, one of the, the best advice I, I heard um, our families talk about was if you, if you do offer to go grocery shopping that you don't offer to pay uh, for everything that they get because then the family feels guilty because they don't want you buying toilet paper or you know some of their personal hygiene products. But if they paid you, um, the money, and then you went out and just got it, it made them feel better. So just asking each family, like, what do you feel like you need um, in this moment? And being, you know, throwing out ideas, but letting them choose and letting them also dictate how those get fulfilled. As far as conversations go, um, you know, just being able and willing to say, how can I support you? Um, or like saying, hey, I see that you look a little tired and exhausted. Or, you know, I, I noticed that, you know, your interactions with your children are, are pretty heated. Um, would you be okay if I gave you some time away um, just for yourself? Or can I take the kids out um, and agreeing upon, like, maybe we'll go to the park or go to, like, um, watch a movie and, and just talking about different things that they can do outside of the home. So, so having someone who's just paying attention, paying attention, noticing and right. kind of, I would imagine it would take some, some courage and fortitude to say to a close friend, like, it looks like I could, maybe you could use some help. Right. Here's what I could, here's what I'm thinking I could do. What would be most helpful for you? And I think right. it seems like that could be um, kind of scary the first time you do it. Yes. But not giving advice. So a lot of... Um, Not like, you know, you really need to take a bubble bath. You look real tired. Right. Or, well, this is how you need to handle your children um, or how you should raise them. So that is not the time or the place to offer free advice. Parenting advice. Right. Um, because, you know, this family is experiencing something that they've never experienced before. So they're bound to make mistakes, and that's okay. Um, and they're going to find their way through it and... You don't want to be a roadblock to them finding the rhythm and the right way through it for this family. 
So, um, so that's really some support for the, the caregiver. The caregiver. And then say you are a parent or a caregiver and you're trying to figure out how am I going to talk to my child about the illness that their brother or right. their sister or their parent or their caregiver has. What are some things that we want to make sure we have in mind when we're talking to kids about the diagnosis, the treatment, all the changes sure. that are happening? Um, there's usually a lot of fear that we have as adults talking with kids about illnesses and death and dying and grief. And, um, and so just being able to check in with ourselves first um, and understanding, okay, what am I feeling? Am I being anxious? Am I trying to protect them and not share uh, information? Or am I sharing too much information? Or am I protecting myself? Because it's really hard to say these words to my child and I'm not sure how to right. respond to their emotions. And a lot of times we'll say, we'll just wait for the right time. You know? And typically there is no right time. The right time is, is the time that we create. So a right time would be providing enough space and time for children to ask questions. Um, being able to understand exactly what it is that I'm going to share with um, each of family member. So if you have a four-year-old and an eight-year-old and a 12-year-old, they're going to understand this illness very differently. So the best frame of reference would be to um, speak in a language that the four-year-old can understand first. And then... What might that sound like? What's an example of how you might explain to a four-year-old that you know, mommy has leukemia. Sure. Um, so, you know, it would be basically mommy has an illness. It's called leukemia. Um, what this illness does specifically is there's these little cells that live inside your body. And usually those cells are really helpful and help somebody to survive. But sometimes they get a little haywired and um, or they, they go bad and they start growing and they grow and grow and grow and they take over all the good cells. They're not working the way they're supposed to be working. Right. Um, and that eventually will mean that mommy will die. And this is what death looks like. So mommy will stop breathing. She'll stop talking. She'll stop feeling. Um, and so, you know, that might be the very first time a child experiences a death. So, you know, understanding the permanence of death um, will happen over time. It won't happen in that conversation per as se. As it does for adults too, right? We cognitively right. understand that death is a permanent thing, but even as adults, we still get to that place of, is this real? Did this actually happen? I keep right. thinking I'm going to see them when I come home. And so right. I know for me, when I'm talking with younger kids, it's helpful to recognize that even though cognitively they may be in a different place than I am, I can still relate to right. the questions and the fears and the concerns they have because they're similar to mine, but it can just be more um, prominent for younger kids. Right. Um, and then, you know, being able to just to share that with a four-year-old, with the eight and 12-year-old who are present, and then I would take the eight and the 12-year-old aside and have a separate conversation with them, um, allow them to ask more questions if they're interested, um, but also to keep an open invitation for all, all three kids, if, the, if that's your family, to say at any point if you have questions, feel free to ask. I may not have the answers, but we can certainly find um, or seek out people who may have those answers. So. Or maybe let's make a list so that when we go to the doctor, we can make sure the doctor can answer your questions too. Because right. I could imagine so often there's a long list of questions that the adults, the person who has the illness and the adult who's in the caregiving role might have. But it could be, I imagine, really helpful for if the kids come with them to the appointment to say, let's ask the doctor your questions too. 
and have more of a direct communication. That way kids feel like their questions matter and they're really important. Right. And you know, then there's this question of timing. Like when do you share it? Like, so do you share it early in the illness? Do you share it like late in the illness? And that's gonna be dependent on each family member uh, as well. I think uh, for most of us, the earlier, the better. That way that they have time to prepare and to create memories and to talk and to discuss it uh, with the person who is uh, sick. Because I imagine there's some families maybe who say, you know, we're not going to tell the kids until we start to see some symptoms. You know, right. cause, you know, she doesn't, she's not acting any different. She doesn't look any different. Nothing's really visible. Right. But I would imagine for kids, if by the time the person starts to have symptoms, maybe things move a lot quicker and then kids didn't have time. And I just know for me being in the, the bereavement groups where there's already been a death, there's a lot of kids who are like, I wish I, they had told me sooner because right. I would have made some different choices. You know, maybe I would have decided not to play baseball that season so I could spend more time with my dad, but I didn't know. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so just being able to connect with uh, the, each family member uh, at the very beginning of the conversation and just um, kind of share, like, here's what's going to happen in the next year or two years. or To the best of our knowledge. To the best of our knowledge. Know, this is what the change. doctors are saying. Mm -hmm. um, can really change the entire experience. So um, this event is going to change your family forever. And we have the choice of the story that we're going to create around it. So we can do and put in our best effort to create a good story. And a good story is, um, is one that your family is going to have to define. But I would say it's basically where information is being shared and uh, and there's this level of connection um, with each person within the family and um, where each person feels like they can trust the other family members where isn't, there isn't this sense of betrayal because information was being kept or secrets were being kept. Um, so being able to share all of that in a language that children understand. Come across any stories of ways that kids have been invited into participating in the caregiving process in a way that felt good for the kids? Yeah, so um, being able to care for the person who is ill um, can be a huge empowerment uh, for each child. So it could be as simple as just making sure that the person has water or flowers in the room or, you know, making artwork for the person, so whether they're at home or in the hospital, you know, having those, those things in the room that the person is in can be a constant reminder that this child is in that person's life and is caring for them in a way that they can. Sometimes it's, you know, massaging their feet or... Um, Rubbing so, lotion on dry skin or... Or sitting down and reading glass. a book uh, um, or just, you know, writing down memories, something like that. Yeah. And I imagine similar to as we talk with kids who have had a death that letting kids make the choice about what's important to them. Because as a well-meaning adult, we might think, here's something you can do. Right. The child's like, I don't want to do that. Right. I want to do this. And so right. asking kids, what would you like to do? Recognizing that they may not, may not be able to do what they would like to do, but maybe can compromise and make that a process where kids are active participants in deciding. 
right? And we can also give them a menu of here, here's a whole list of things that we can do to, to tell mommy or to show mommy that we're caring for her or uh, to demonstrate to dad that like we love him. And, yeah. So I know we're getting close on time because yeah. it goes by so fast. It does. And, um, you know, for listeners out there, we'll have a, a list in our show notes of all these great suggestions that Tony had so that you don't have to be scribbling furious out, uh, furiously out there trying to remember everything he said. So we'll have our show notes with suggestions. And Tony, I'm wondering just for the last little bit, is there any kind of legacy activity that you've heard about? And so when I say that, I'm thinking of ways that the person who is dying can create memories or a legacy for the kids that they're leaving behind. Is there anything you've heard of that's really stood out? Yeah, um, there also is a caveat. So one of the things, um, a lot of times, uh, the person who is ill will wait um, before they do any of these legacy things um, because they want to focus all of their energy into getting better or that they're denying that there's this possibility that they could be dying and so they don't want to do this because if they do any, any legacy thing like writing down their life stories or creating videos, um, that would mean giving up. Um, so for those families who uh, have that, there's usually a lot of guilt and frustration uh, when a family member who is the one who's dying has waited and maybe has waited too long to do it. And so there's this absence of what could have been. With that said, if it's early in the diagnosis and the person is still cognizant and has all their faculties with them, uh, there's plenty of things that they can do in order to leave their legacy. So um, I've heard of um, parents writing letters to each one of their child children um, around significant events. So maybe when the child's going to turn 16 or on their 21st birthday or when they go off to college or... Uh, when they get married or having their first kid. So um, just writing down like tidbits of wisdom of you know sharing their own story of when they turn 16 or here's what I wish I knew. Um, I've also seen videos of, uh, of parents who've left videos for their kids around specific events like that as well. Um, sometimes it's creating a memory box uh, together of things that were significant so that the child can um, access that memory box 10, 15, 20 years from now. And that can be an interactive process and that, that can the be person an interactive, does with the right. child. Right. So creating things together. So it could be photographs together. It could be creating objects. It could be taking things that were significant uh, in that child's life and in your life uh, as a parent or a guardian. And I imagine that as somebody who's trying to impart wisdom, Two children, you know, I'm, you know, if I'm dying and I want to make sure my kids know everything I need them to know, that could feel like a lot of pressure, you know, to be wise and sage in that way. And and I know from listening to kids after someone has died that they value anything, like any like random memory or just a story that the person says. And so I imagine kind of taking down that pressure of this having to right. be the last things that I share with you and and as we were talking earlier about ways that kids can help in the caregiving process, I wonder about you know a four or a five-year-old being equipped with just an iPhone camera and going in and videotaping a conversation that he has with daddy. And he gets to be the interviewer right. or some way to, to make that legacy creation an interactive process. And one of the other things that um, extended family members and friends can do is write down stories that they have of the person who is ill. 
and then collecting all of those stories and putting them in like a book so that a child can go back and read those when they're older and be like, oh man, I didn't, you know, I didn't know that my dad right. was such an adventurer, you know, or so funny, like with all of his buddies or like yeah, that. Yeah, my dad was always so serious as a dad, but what? He went on a, like a Harley Davidson ride when he was 18. I had no idea. So yeah, or that, you know, mom was you know, a softball player or something like that. And, um, you know, and she went on some tournaments and like some things that the kid will never know unless somebody else tells them that story. So being ha able to have a collection of stories is really invaluable. Right. So if you're a listener out there and you're friends with a family who is experiencing an illness and you're wondering what you can do, that's something you can start with just jotting down memories that you have and saving them to, to give to the kids. And I know one of the things I try really hard in my life when I do that for other people is to ask them if they want to see them and say, I have them, and I can send them to you, but I want you to know what's in there so that people don't just open up. And I've heard of families who they open oh, up an envelope yeah. and all these stories come pouring out, and they were not prepared. They weren't ready to look at right. it then. So if you're, if you're out there and you're doing that, put a little note on there. Say right. it contains memories of. Open so, when you're ready. Yeah, open when you're ready. Or something like, yeah. yeah. And you'll know the time. So, Tony, thank you so sure. much. I know the time has flown by. Wow, it So really I has. imagine you'll be back again for yeah. uh, part two of this. So, listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll have show notes up for you. Again, this is episode 19. So you can find us on our website, www.dougie.org. And you can also look us up in iTunes, which if you do that, please feel free to give us a rating or write us a review. That'll help other people find us. If you want to learn more about the Dougie Center, you can check us out on Facebook. We're also on Twitter. And we'd love to be talking about the things that mean the most to you in this podcast. So if you have ideas for episodes or if you have questions you'd like us to dive into at some point, send us an email at help at Dougie.org and just put podcast somewhere in the subject line so we can be sure to find you. So thanks again for listening and join us again for our next episode of the Dear Dougie podcast. Thanks so much, Tony. Thank you. Thanks for listening.